Hello, welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series. Today we have a new old guest in Dr. Jonathan Spire. Dr. Spire has been with the Middle East Forum um, for a long time as a fellow, and he was recently elevated to the head of research at the Middle East Forum. He also wears several other hats with several other organizations and is the author of three books, including, most importantly for today's talk, Days of the Fall, a reporter's journey in the in Syria, in the Syria and Iraq wars, excuse me. He spent a lot of time on the ground in both countries, and the Assad regime actually fired one of its ministers due to not preventing him from entering the country. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Cliff. Nice to be here. Um, let me read you an excerpt um, from the last article you wrote in the Jerusalem Post. Mm -hmm. um, you state that Syrian observers have long noted on the, the tacit cooperation between Ankara and Hayatir al-Sham, the group, HTS, formerly known as Jahabat al-Nusra, formerly the official franchise of the Al-Qaeda network in Syria. The latest events, however, suggest an increased level of cooperation. So starting from there, we know that HTS is a former Al-Qaeda organization, but what else mm -hmm. do we know about it? And what interest does Erdogan's Turkey have in working with it? Right, so let's uh, first of all provide a bit of context in answering that because I guess we can't assume that everybody listening knows exactly about the kind of breakdown of power in Syria today. Syria, of course, uh, is today divided into three uh, power enclaves. The Assad regime area, of course, about 70% of the country, or 60 to 70% of the country. The Kurdish and US-controlled area, 25 to 30%. We are concerned today with the third area, in the northwest of the country, which is the area controlled by the Turks uh, in, in cooperation with a number of Islamist militias on the ground. The thing to remember, first of all, about this area is that this is really the last remnant of the rebellion uh, against Assad that was launched, of course, back in 2011. Uh, this is the last enclave controlled by the rebels. Now, this area is divided actually into two broad areas, areas of control. One is based in a town called, or its capital is in the town, a town called Azaz. And this is uh, controlled by a thing called the Syrian interim government, which is essentially a Turkish controlled entity that brings together a number of rebel militias under the Turkish umbrella, uh, accompanied by a notional government called the Syrian interim government that's based on the Syrian national coalition, the Syrian, which is the Syrian rebel uh, uh, coalition. Now, to the south of that area, there is another area of control, and this is the area controlled by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, who you mentioned, this former franchise of Al-Qaeda, this is a very hardline jihadi, Sunni jihadi organization, and this finds its capital so-called in, uh, in Idlib and consists of most of Idlib uh, province. Now, Turkey is the essential guarantor of both those areas, but officially Turkey does not cooperate with Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which it in fact considers a terrorist organization, as do the United States and the European Union. And what my article was about was it was about a series of events that have taken place or took place in October, uh, which appear to indicate what many of us already kind of were fairly convinced by because of previous evidence, which is that de facto there is a kind of tacit cooperation on the ground between Turkey and Hayat Tahrir al-Sham for reasons which we can uh, go into and develop, I guess, in the course of our uh, conversation. 
Yeah, you hit on my next question with some of that. I was going to ask a little bit more about the Syrian um, interim government and the Syrian National Army. Um, can you mm -hmm. discuss those organizations? Um, you've already discussed them in light of their relationship with Erdogan and Turkey. Can you mm -hmm. discuss their relationship with the Assad regime and the Syriac Democratic Council? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, uh, Syrian uh, National Army or Jaish al-Watani in uh, in uh, Arabic, which is of course the uh, framework essentially created by Turkey when it kind of pulled together a whole bunch of of rebel organizations under its own uh, auspices. And as you mentioned, or as you mentioned, Syrian interim government, notionally the political uh, representative of uh, of that uh, same framework. Uh, regarding the Assad regime, well, it's interesting. I mean, officially speaking, we tend to, you know, people, analysts tend to refer to Syrian National Army as kind of a gathering of former rebels and people or groups that used to fight against the Assad regime, and now they don't so much. Actually, in practice, many of the young men who belonged to the Syrian National Army, or Jaish al-Watani, were recruited by the Turks from the very large Syrian refugee population in southern Turkey, and many or most of them have, in fact, never engaged in military activity against the Assad regime. They were people who, who with their families fled from the civil war rather than taking part in it. Uh, and who have they in fact been mainly engaged against? And, and actually who are they in, in a way the main force against is the Syrian Democratic Council, as I say, the Kurdish uh, US aligned enclave east of the Euphrates because Erdogan of Turkey, having been one of the very first uh, powers to strongly back the rebellion against the Assad regime, uh, then in a way switched his attention after 2013, 2014 or so, when it became clear that the Assad regime was not going to be brought down anytime soon. And when from Erdogan's point of view, a more urgent enemy, in fact, uh, came into being, which was the Kurdish enclave in Northeast Syria, dominated as it was and as it remains by the PYD, Democratic Union Party, with the YPG uh, fighting force, who Turkey, I think actually correctly and fairly, you know, identified as aligned with, at the very least, the PKK organization, which of course has been engaged in insurgency against Turkey since the mid 1980s, and which Turkey regards as its main terrorist so-called uh, enemy. So from this point of view, the Syrian National Army was put together by the Turks from Syrian refugees resident on Turkish soil in order to be the kind of ground force for Turkish efforts against the Syrian Kurds. And indeed, uh, Turkey has carried out uh, no less than four quite significant military operations against the Syrian Kurds since 2016. And in all of those, up to and including the most recent uh, operations, the Syrian National Army these former rebels, so-called, or young Syrians, have been the kind of, frankly, uh, cannon fodder which Turkey has used to throw them into battle uh, against the Kurds. The problem for the Turks with these guys has been, and this is where we kind of get back a little bit to Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and Turkey's cooperation with them. The problem for Turkey has been that these guys in the so-called Syrian National Army just aren't particularly good just aren't actually worth very much as fighters. It's called the Syrian National Army, but actually the pre-existing militia structures from which it was formed remain in existence. And many of these militias are engaged against one another as much as against the Kurds. And much of the reasons why they're engaged against one another is for petty uh, criminal reasons, some kind of like mafia-like reasons, i.e. control of turf, 
control of resources, control of neighborhoods. You know, so it's a pretty uh, nondescript and, and fairly unimpressive force that Turkey has created with regards to Syrian National Army and the Syrian uh, interim government. So you alluded to something that I was um, thinking about there. Um, you discussed Syria, um, Turkey's various invasions since 2016 of mm. northeast Syria. Um, was this sort of all part of the plan when those invasions have gone on to empower the kinds of groups you're discussing here? Yeah, also to empower them and also to disempower the Kurds. That's to say the Syrian-Turkish border is a very a very long border of nearly 900 kilometers. It's a very long border. And at a certain period of time, when Kurdish power was at its height, so to speak, in around 2018, 2017, 2018, the Kurds were coming into possession of the, of the, the great majority of that border. And Turkey regarded that as an urgent national uh, security threat. Uh, some, I was saying not, not 2018, 2016 rather. And in 2016, then the first Turkish operation, which is Operation uh, Euphrates Shield, uh, began. And the intention of that and all the subsequent operations was to cut away at and chip away at Kurdish control of the border, to separate the Kurds into isolated enclaves and then to destroy them. And the issue we've been interested in recently with regard to Hayat Tahrir al-Sham is taking place in the far northwest of Syria, around the town of Afrin which was in fact under Kurdish control until a Turkish military operation in 2018 took it away from the Kurds. And it's in that area where Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, with Turkey's permission, has been very active over the last few weeks. Yeah, and so it's just worth noting, when we're hearing Turkey talk about terrorists in Northeast Syria, you know, we can talk all day about the problems with um, the Kurdish forces there, but they're not mm -hmm. referring to the jihadist groups that you and I are usually going to be thinking about. They're referring to Kurds, is that correct? That is correct. And in actual fact, there's ample evidence to show that Turkey has in fact been cooperating with many of the jihadi groups that we would be usually talking about. Even though, as I said, it's complex because Turkey is a sophisticated uh, operator, you know, and so Turkey both designates, for example, ISIS and Hayat Tahrir al-Sham as terrorist organizations. And yet at the same time, there is evidence that Turkey also has cooperated or is cooperating with them. And that leads me to another issue. And that is um, your article you know, focuses very specifically on a few different groups and actors, mm -hmm. but this is not, shall we say unique. It is not necessarily new in the idea of Turkey hosting, supporting or otherwise coddling jihadist groups. Uh, just looking around, Jonathan Shanzer of FDD and Akon Idemir of the ADL have noted in extensively uh, Turkish support for Hamas, uh, mm -hmm. de facto support, or at minimum looking the other way on things like funding of ISIS and traveling of ISIS fighters. Um, they've discussed how Turkey has helped evade Iran sanctions. Our colleague, yeah. Fransman, has named numerous other groups um, operating in de facto Turkish controlled areas. Um, are there other examples? Are there more? What are the dynamics between these groups and Turkey's support? Do you have anything to say about those? I mean, yeah, the thing is that this, this is really an important point you make, because, of course, when we talk about northwest Syria and the sort of minutiae of various jihadi groups, people might legitimately ask, yeah, well, why should why should I sort of speak, be interested in this blighted corner of northwest Syria and this alphabet soup of uh, of you know jihadi and Islamist organizations, and the answer is because it forms a a part of a much larger picture, which should concern us all, which is that Turkey, this current Turkish government, I mean, of, of Erdogan and the AKP, has basically made a strategic ally across the region of Sunni political Islam in 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 myriad 
in the myriad forms in which it appears. So, for example, Turkey was a major supporter of the Muslim, the short-lived Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt. It was a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood franchise, the Anahda Party, which stood for power in Tunisia. Uh, it is and remains very notably a supporter of and domicile of the Hamas terror organization uh, of the Palestinians. So, you know, the, the examples are, are countless and they form part of a coherent regional strategy in which the Turkish government wishes to partner with anti-Western, dangerous and violent uh, Sunni Islamist forces. And the reason why that matters is because there is a larger policy discussion, of course, in the United States and in Israel regarding the nature of the Turkish government. Is the Turkish government basically pragmatic and can we and should we seek to work with and reconcile with the current Turkish government? Or is the current Turkish government, in fact, a, a force that backs enemies of the West in a, and of Israel and of Jews often in a consistent and uh, 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 ongoing uh, fashion? And I believe that the evidence suggests that the answer is the latter. And that's why this is very important, even if it might seem like a little bit esoteric, actually, it's not so at all. Yeah, it, it, there has been, as you mentioned, a lot of debate about the direction um, Turkey has gone under Erdogan, has gone in a much more Islamist direction. And um, you know, Erdogan um, himself has some pretty clear Islamist ties upbringing in terms mm -hmm. of schooling, some of the people he worked with. Um, mm -hmm. How what, are there other ways that this sort of more Islamist outlook is playing out in Turkey beyond his support of jihadi groups in Syria or some of the other issues you mentioned? Well, I would say yes, in the sense that if we if we if we connect that support for political Islam to the ongoing undermining of Turkish institutions, which has characterized AKP government over the last decade or so, that's to say the hollowing out and destruction of the free media. Uh, in Turkey, the hot, the uh, the undermining of the court system, the uh, the uh, the weakening or the drastic weakening or hollowing out of the top echelons of the Turkish army and security forces through this uh, somewhat this mythical you know, Ergenekon huge conspiracy that Erdogan has maintained is being waged against him, and then the replacement in the uh, military. But of these old, you know, Kemalist nationalist officers by a new rising cadre, cadre of uh, Islamist uh, officers, then absolutely yes. I mean, the support for jihadi organizations in a systematic uh, fashion, you know, I think uh, I would say constitutes part of a much broader project to radically, I would say, transform the nature of Turkey to the extent of which many Turks today would say that Erdogan is in a way trying to create a brand new Turkish Republic. He's no longer the continuer of the Republic, you know, created by uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, you know, a, a, about a century ago, but rather he's trying to create a new uh, Islamic Republic of Turkey of which he himself will be remembered as, uh, as the founder. Mm -hmm. On the, the a related point, um, our colleague Seth Bransman really did a, uh, recently did a tweet storm um, discussing mm. how um, Benjamin Netanyahu's comeback in Israel might affect its foreign policy, and Turkey was a major focus, particularly Turkey's, as you mentioned, um, housing of Hamas and support for other uh, radical organizations. Um, yet, in the last um, year or so, um, Turkey has, at least on paper, made nice with Israel and is trying to reestablish yeah. better relations. Um, what do you think the future of that is? Is it temporary? Is it a serious strategic shift? 
how do you view it in context of their support for jihadi organizations and Erdogan's Islamist outlook? Right. Well, I mean, it is it's notable that Erdogan himself went on the record, you know, after the results of the Israeli elections came out uh, and said that as far as he was concerned, regardless of who was elected prime minister of, uh, of Israel, that the process of rapprochement set in motion in recent months, of course, uh, would continue. And indeed, as we've seen, President Herzog and uh, also a defense minister, Gantz, most recently, you know, visiting uh, Turkey. So there's an ongoing process there. My own sense is that Erdogan, this happened for good pragmatic pragmatic reasons from Erdogan's point of view. His economy is in an enormous mess. He's facing runaway inflation. He has an election coming up next year uh, in which he you know, wishes to show, among other things, progress on foreign policy issues. He wants very much to get back into the good auspices of the United States administration. That's what this is about. And I think what he thinks is that reconciling with Israel, reconciling also, by the way, with United Arab Emirates, and with Egypt and with other US, let's say other US allies in the region is all part of trying to achieve that. So given that he had concrete reasons for attempting this, I assume he'll want to continue to uh, to attempt it, to continue that process. Having said that, I think the thing is very much, you know, on thin ice in the sense that I'm, it, it doesn't affect the main sentiments, underlying sentiments and beliefs, of course, of Erdogan or AKP. And my own sense, at least, is that the next time that Israel has a spat with Hamas, uh, in Gaza, it's very possible or likely, at least once the election in 2023 is done, that Erdogan will then rapidly reverse course once again. Certainly, I'm hearing from people and we're hearing reports here, there has been no attempt so far to, in fact, uh, impact on the presence of an active Hamas office there in Turkey, in spite of you know the making nice that has taken place in recent weeks and in recent months. I've discussed this also with Seth, by the way, who's a, you know, a friend and colleague, and uh, you know we agreed that there may, there may be a sense that Netanyahu will not have a great deal of patience for that. And then if that does happen, then he may well be a person who, you know, won't hesitate in order to, to draw conclusions from that and to, to perhaps freeze if the issue is, is right, you know, the ongoing process of rapprochement. I personally have been very skeptical about the whole thing from the start, especially because of the potential cost it has on the very positive relations that Israel has established with Cyprus and Greece during the time when Israel did not have you know, uh, full diplomatic relations with Turkey. So I think there's a, a whole bunch of question marks remaining. I don't want to characterize it as if to say that this current government in Israel was soft and Netanyahu's back and now he'll be tough. I don't think, I think that can be a bit simplistic. But certainly, I think the thing is on very thin ice, and I would not be surprised if the rapprochement does not last very far beyond the upcoming elections in Turkey uh, next year. We're going to ask another question or two, but to the audience, we already have a few questions in the Q&A box. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to ask more, please put them in and I will get to as many of them as I can as soon as I finish another question or two. Um, before we get to audience questions, um, since we're talking about sort of Turkey and um, support for terrorism and Islamism, um, one thing that I think a lot of people have noticed that have looked at this is that um, Turkey is increasingly close to other um, regimes that are supporting Islamism and jihadi groups, um, Pakistan and Qatar yeah. particularly are the ones I'm thinking mm -hmm. of. Um, speaking from sort of a U.S. point of view to the degree you can, how does the factor out that when the, the that NATO is an, excuse me, Turkey is a NATO member and Pakistan and Qatar are now, uh, now in Qatar's case, and now major non-NATO allies, how does that affect U.S. interests and U.S. calculations when they are trying to put a dampener on his support for jihad and the other groups support for jihad, yet it's coming from US allies. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think this is a really important question for, for American friends to consider, I would say, as an outsider, so to speak, speaking from Israel. But absolutely so, because Turkey, like Pakistan, like Qatar, have the commonality that these are all, as you mentioned, notional uh, close allies of the United States and the West, who all of them, each in their different ways, are actively supportive of Islamist and jihadi organizations in different ways for different reasons, sometimes in different places. But they have that factor in common. I can only say that from it seems to me it is unwise to adopt, to continue the kind of attitude of ongoing tolerance for that, which I think the United States and others have been willing to display in the past and indeed continue to display up to the present. As of now, support for Islamist organizations and for jihadi organizations for Turkey and Qatar and Pakistan has been largely cost-free. And as a result of that, it is unsurprising that this support has continued and there's no sign of it uh, changing or stopping. I don't think it should be cost-free. I don't think that uh, Western nations and the United States uh, above all, should uh, take the attitude that, well, we need these countries so much for you know, a whole host of reasons, we can afford to kind of tolerate this strange little things that they want to get up to with uh, Islamist and jihadi organizations. It's not like that. It's deeply dangerous stuff that they're engaged in. And I absolutely think there should be uh, a reckoning. In the case of all three countries, by the way, we're discussing Turkey, but with regard to Pakistan, with regard to Qatar, the issue is equally urgent and equally uh, important, I would say. Great. Now we'll get to audience questions again. If anybody has any more, uh, please put them in the question box. I'll get to as many uh, questions as we can. Um, um, this is from Lauren Homer. Um, do you think Turkey's um, tacit agreement with HTS expansion in Northwest and Northeast Syria is part of an agreed upon path to Assad's cessation of control of these areas or instead an effort to tell Assad it won't get controlled back? Right. Well, this is a really that's a really significant question, of course, and a really good question. I'm glad it was asked because that's what there, there was a whole bunch of speculation in late October when Turkey permitted HTS to come north to enter Afrin town to fight and defeat the third legion there, which was officially part of the Syrian national army. And then in the agreement that followed that fighting, in which, by the way, 58 people were killed. So it wasn't a, just a, a little tiny skirmish, you know, a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, shooting took place. In the agreement that followed that, HTS now has a permanent and official role in the governance of not only its own area of control, the area of the so-called Syrian Salvation Government in Idlib, but also the area of control of the Syrian National Army. So there was a great deal of regional speculation in, in media following that, which said, yeah, sort of put two and two together and maybe made five and said, well, you know, we know that Erdogan has been making feelers in recent uh, months with regard to the possibility of his meeting with Assad and the sense that Turkey may be in, involved in a process of rapprochement uh, with the Assad regime. So a lot of people speculate in the way that in our region can sometimes take place that, well, maybe what Turkey wanted to do was to, in fact, bring HTS into control of the entirety of the Turkish controlled area. Because HTS lacks any international legitimacy of any kind, it would then be much easier as a next stage for Turkey to then hand the entire area back to the Assad regime as part of its stated desire for uh, for renewed context and rapprochement with the regime. My own sense, at least, was, you know, we need to be careful with some of this speculation, which tends to happen a lot in our region. There's no proof of any of that. People were just putting stuff together and saying, well, that might be what's taking place. My own sense, at least, is that Erdogan is not going to sell out completely 
the uh, Syrian rebellion and the Sunni Arab rebels and Islamists and jihadis. Erdogan is both an ideological man and a very proud man. And this would be him essentially conceding defeat on a strategic level for a policy he's promoted over the last decade. I just don't see it. I have a much more mod modest, I would say, uh, explanation for what may have just for what just took place, which is that I think Erdogan and probably not only Erdogan, but the Turkish military and intelligence as well, looked at the situation in northwest Syria and just noticed that the people they're backing in the Syrian National Army are absolutely uh, inefficient, are largely criminal, are engaged in fighting against one another and are in fact creating an area of chaos in northwest Syria. And then they looked a bit further south at the HTS control area. And frankly, I think they said to themselves, you know, these guys are jihadis, these guys are implementing one of the most stringent applications of Sharia law imaginable. But hey, their area is pretty tightly governed. You know, they're not corrupt, they are united, they deal with opposition. And I think Turkey actually just wants to bring HTS up there in order to sort of insert a more stable form of governance. Of course, from a Turkish point of view, there's no problem with the fact that they're jihadis. There's no problem with the fact that they're extreme Islamists. The Turkish government, for reasons we already discussed, is kind of fine with that. But I think the actual practical reason why they want them in there is because, oddly enough, HTS is actually a much more stable and reliable partner in a certain sense for the Turkish government than the kind of shower, if I can put it that way, of, you know, of Islamist organizations squabbling and shooting one another up which Afrin has been characterized by uh, in recent weeks and months. Next one, uh, Len Levin asks, it isn't, is, is, is it in Israel's interest to actively support Kurdish um, fighters against Turkey and Syria, um, or is it more advantageous for them to simply let these parties do whatever among themselves? I think that Israel uh, certainly regards it as in its interest that the Kurdish enclave in uh, northeast Syria survives. And the reason, of course, and it survives currently because of its own strength, but also because of the active backing of the United States government and the presence of a small but, but significant US military force on the ground there. The reason why Israel wants that uh, enclave to survive, apart from you know, the, the, the moral reason that the Kurds deserve uh, to have as much autonomy as they, as they can get, and they're doing well down there, but also is because de facto that area forms a kind of buffer against Iranian expansion east to west, because of course, for as long as the Kurds and the Americans are there in that area, the Iranians can't use it to bring stuff and, and fighters and, and material and weaponry across to uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon or towards the border with Israel. And that means that when they do bring stuff across, which they still do, they do it south of the Kurdish controlled area in a much smaller uh, area of crossing, which would be much easier for Israel to interdict at a time of war should it need uh, to do so. So undoubtedly Israel wants that enclave to survive. At the same time, of course, Israel uh, in no way will actively back Kurdish fighters fighting against Turkey. This is not something which Israel wants to get into. Israel wants to have as normal relations, of course, with Turkey, nevertheless a NATO member and a US allied country uh, as it possibly can. So I think the notion of sort of overt support in a situation where Kurdish fighters and Syrian soil would be fighting the Turks, you know, won't be coming from Israel anytime soon. With regard to a tacit behind the scenes channel of communication, uh, and maybe even on some level of cooperation between Israel and the Kurdish enclave in Syria. Uh, I can't bring any sort of you know, information to say I know that there is such a channel, but I would imagine that there most probably is because it's clearly would clearly be in the interests of both entities, Israel and the Kurdish autonomy. It's not yet a state uh, in Syria. It's clearly in both interests, both their interests, there should be such a channel 
And so I suspect that such a channel of communication probably does exist. We have several questions that are asking similar things and that they amount to this. Um, how does Russia and the war in Ukraine, um, how has that affected their presence in Syria and how does it affect Turkish ambitions in Northeast Syria and other parts of Syria as well? So firstly, it, it is the case, and I think one can now confirm it, that the Russians have significantly downgraded their presence in Syria as a result of the war in Ukraine. There is evidence has emerged, for example, that one of the S-300 batteries, you know, air defense batteries that they placed on Syrian soil has now been removed from Syria, you know, and it's and is heading back in the direction of Russia or indeed perhaps Ukraine or close to the border with Ukraine. The Russians are absolutely bogged down in Ukraine. They don't have time anymore for much else. I even heard in recent days from a Syrian friend that the Wagner uh, military uh, contracting company that people are probably familiar with is currently recruiting among young Syrians to send them to Ukraine. As that's how much the situation has reversed itself. Syria no longer, you know, in a sense that the focus of Russian attention, but in fact, rather, is being used as a place to recruit people to send them, you know, as fighters or as cannon fodder once again to eastern uh, Ukraine. So the answer is, Ukraine is, is Russia's uh, focus now, Syria much less so. It doesn't mean that they're going to give up on Syria, of course not. They remain committed to uh, the Assad regime and to its and to its defence. How does that impact uh, that sort of reduced uh, presence, so to speak, of Russia in Syria impact on the situation uh, for Turkey? The answer is, up until now at least, it hasn't impacted that much. The way in which many people thought it might impact during the summer was people, many people thought it might open the way for an additional Turkish offensive uh, against the Kurds in northern Syria, because the, the Russians might sort of, sort of give the Turks a green light for that offensive, which they certainly do want to carry out. But as of now, at least, that has not yet happened. And the sense is that the Russians, in fact, when, when Turkey started during the summer to make noises about possible preparations for an attack of that kind, the Russians actually gave them a firm no. So at the present time, at least, it hasn't opened the door for the Turks in the way that they would like it to. But I'm sure they're watching very closely for that. You see, the things with regard to the Kurds, east of the Euphrates, the Kurds are protected by the American presence. But west of the Euphrates, they are not. The, the boundaries of the war against ISIS, which is the reason why officially why the Americans are there, only goes up to the Euphrates River. So Kurdish presence and forces west of the Euphrates remain vulnerable to a possible Turkish attack. The Americans can't prevent that because they're not committed west of the Euphrates, but the people who can prevent it still, and so far have done so, are the Russians who are themselves deployed uh, west of the Euphrates River. Fascinating. Well, look, we really appreciate all this, Jonathan, and uh, thanks to our audience. I wish we could ask, and we have quite a few more questions, but we're out of time. I really appreciate it. Uh, tune in next Most week welcome. for more, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, thanks very much, guys. See you, everyone.